and welcome back to another episode of Lost It Down. That's right, it's Wally's voice you're hearing. Steven is out today, which probably is good for my mental health. But let's go over to our other co-host of the episode, David Clavin. It's just you and me. I think this is our first technical show while we're co-host and not yep. doing an interview. So I'm pretty excited, man. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Can't complain. Same old status quo week to week. And for the viewers, in case you aren't homeless yet, don't worry. From here on out, my bets are going to be winners. You know, that's good because I need something to look forward to. People at home, thank God for David trying to almost talk me off the ledge yesterday. I am at an all point, like an all time ready to jump off a cliff football feeling right now. I'm at as low as I can go. Hula hoop down. What's the damn limbo? I'm I'm on the ground. I'm just crawling around day to day. It's not good. But we're going to start off with some good news. So we're going to try to get the energy up, try to be a little happier here. Our NFL news today, no more Pro Bowl. That's right, America. We did it. We bullied the NFL into getting rid of their glorified touch football game. David, I know that you've been kind of pushing for this forever. It's like since I can remember this has been a talking point, you've been big on the let's get skill position, let's make the it a skill competition. Let's make this fun again. So what are your thoughts? You have to be through the roof too on this news. I'm excited uh, because as you said, I've always been a proponent of it ever since. I don't know if you remember this. There was a kicking skills comp one year in the Pro Bowl and it was like Neil Rackers or whatever his name was. I think it's Neil It Rackers. was Neil Rackers, yeah. Yeah, versus uh, another like prominent kicker at the time. And they were like, they kick in like 40 yards outside the field, like kicking at insane angles, kicking over buildings, like just doing cool stupid fun kicks to watch and I think competitions like that especially for player groups that aren't a quarterback where you've seen the skills competition every year for that position I think kicker skills comps punter skills comps just anything anything out of the ordinary that you're not used to could be a lot of fun and and you know maybe year one isn't higher viewership until they actually see what it is but I'm excited to watch it. Like, I think it could be a lot of fun if they do it right and make it games, you know, carnival games almost, rather than let's see who's the fastest around the cones. But I think the flag football game is a a transition to fun things. I think the first edition of it could be a boatload of fun because these guys just live for competing. And now that they can have fun doing it rather than worry about getting hurt or just put up a boatload of points or do whatever, you know, the Pro Bowl has become, I guess, I think it it could be a lot of fun. And I'd love nothing more than see a fat boy from the line of scrimmage, catch a football and do something with it in flag football. But ultimately, I love the skills comp. If that's what it becomes, the fantastic, that's fine by me. But I think what I was thinking about and what could be really, really interesting, just given the, the and obviously this is biased because we're on a podcast, but given the growth of podcast culture and like open discussion culture, I think it could be really fun to bring some of these guys in, guys who don't have platforms already. Like, you know, Tom Brady has a platform, can say whatever he wants. Aaron Rodgers has a platform, can say whatever he wants. Same with Mahomes and Josh Allen, right? But get in. Give me, give me the Jason Kelsey's of the world, even though he does have his own platform as well. But like, give me those guys who don't, who don't have their own platform, put them in an open discussion and let's ask some fun questions, right? Like, I don't, I don't care if they're about how they feel about the NFL, but like, 
you know, where do they want to go after they're done with their careers? Who do they love going head to head with? Right. Like why? I want to know, like, I want to make these guys lovable and marketable. Like I want to come out of the pro bowl. If they did something like this feeling like I never knew this guy before. And now I want his Jersey, even though he plays for a competitor, right? Like that could be nothing but good things for the NFL. If they do it right, they will never do something like that. But I think it could be like really, really cool if they did like 10 guys open discussion, just doing fun little questions, tidbits, like get to know these players that you wouldn't know other than their stat line. I'm glad that you brought up the podcast angle too, because one of the things I've enjoyed most about doing this in the two years is while being as dialed in as we are, we're kind of forced to have to listen to interviews and like dive in and actually learn about these people. And to your point, it's kind of done a weird reverse thing where there are chiefs, there are chargers, there are Broncos that I like actually enjoy. I root for individually. I want the team to fail, but I want them to do well. And it's because of a lot of these things like going on podcasts and all of a sudden these guys are funny. Like I bring up part of my take about once every other month here and DK Metcalf has a great relationship with part of my take. So a guy that I had no real idea about in college at Ole Miss all of a sudden is one of my favorite players to watch in the league because he's got such a great personality so I love that aspect of it I think that's a great point and I think that we're actually going to see like I guess pushing back a little the viewership be great this first year hockey is a great example where they noticed that the traditional all-star game wasn't going to get it done for them so they made a hardcore skills competition the night before you have hardest shot. You have like ridiculous breakaways, weird kind of things like that. And then the next day they did a three on three all-star game. So it's much more fast paced. And it kind of feels that way with the, the flag football aspect. And again, to your point, imagining a guy like Jordan Davis play wide receiver in a flag football game would be hilarious. And fans, I think are going to get a kick out of it. So I think this is a total home run for the league. Before we get into this could have been an email, formerly known as the hair of the dog segment here, this week's NFL's news was brought to you by Abby Turner Creative, your one-stop shop marketing agency specializing in branding, high-end photography, fashion, and more. Especially if you're around Steve and David in my age, there's college graduations, engagements, weddings, baby pictures, things happening all the time. Abby Turner Creative is the only way to go. You got to check her out for yourself on abbyturnerphoto.com. That's Abby, A-B-B-E-Y. We're on our Instagram at Sawdad and Sapphire. Again, that is abbyturnerphoto.com. So David, let's get it kicked off here. We got five, six games that we're going to run through pretty quick. And then we're going to delve into the games we actually want to talk about here. How about you get us going with the Baker Mayfield game, finally getting a win down there in Carolina? Look, I think I called the Saints being frauds from day one when we predicted how these teams were going to go, and they are just not who people thought they were. In terms of Baker, I'm not sold on Baker being bad quite yet. You know, we talked this weekend about Baker maybe being broken, and and I'm not even sold on him being broken yet. I just – Baker came out of college as a guy who who made plays on the fly, and then, you know, for two and a half years, let's call it, because he had a little bit of a regression year two, he looked fantastic. He looked like a fringe 
top 10 quarterback at his best. He wasn't going to be elite, was never going to be elite. I'm not saying that. But, you know, he made plays and he made throws that, you know, some of which were kind of like, oh, wow, like he's that guy, right? But part of me thinks we may have forced him into a system. Maybe we we changed his way of thinking and how he plays and maybe we broke him. Maybe he's just not that good. Maybe I I was wrong all along. Or maybe time will continue to tell. Maybe he'll he'll reverse the way he's playing after after three weeks. But he he just doesn't look good this season. No, he doesn't. And what scares me is that you use the word broken in there. And that is my concern. Whether it be the system, whether it be the coaching, whether it be playing through injury, he has regressed. But the key word there is regressed. I think people are almost determined to ignore the fact that he was making very high level throws early in his career. He didn't just forget how to play football. We just have to hope that at some point it clicks again. Now he's in a situation where his head coach might be at Nebraska in the next week. It's a miserable situation there as well. I'm rooting for Baker. I'm just worried that it's a little too late now. Speaking of rooting for failures though, the Las Vegas Raiders. Yet again, lose the only 0-3 football team in the NFL now. Tennessee holds them on a two-point conversion late. Don't score a second-half point, but don't you worry about it. The Raiders' offense couldn't get it done, and their defense allowed about 180 points in the first half, about twice as many yards. I got nothing. I'm dead inside, David. Look, I'm still on the Raiders' bandwagon. However, even though they have holes in the defense, which feels like one giant gaping hole, and even though they have holes on the offensive line, I still think this is a coaching problem. Don't think the head coach is the guy. Never thought he was the guy anywhere. He's already I, meeting with Mark Davis after games for extended meetings. Three games in. I know. I just I, – I, they're missing Gruden, man. Gruden had that team. It wasn't perfect, but there was structure. They were moving the ball. They were doing good things. I – I just I'm still a believer in this team because on the roster they're too good to be 0 and 3, um, as you know, and as you're very depressed about. I just I'm not I'm not jumping off the bandwagon quite yet. They got 14 games to go. I think they win nine. This Truthfully. bandwagon has three tires off right now. I don't even know how we're going to get back on track. I I well I believe you know, it. I'm done we're with it. No, there. good for you. I'm glad you do. I'm done. <laughs> I am done with this team. If they went great, prove me wrong. They made me look like an idiot last year. But Rich Bazaki is not walking through that door. Gus Bradley's not walking through that door. This team is dead. Houston goes to Chicago. The Bears win in the most bear fashion possible. Offense didn't really look great. Ran the ball well. Defense came up with a couple timely turnovers. But Justin Fields, for better or worse, I'm worried that he's been ruined as well. It's the theme of the year for me. If I root for you, you've been ruined. Yeah, Fields is not – here's the problem. Fields is not the guy for that team. I'm worried Fields isn't going to be the guy because he went to a team like the Bears. I saw somebody say – I don't remember who it was. I saw somebody say that he gives Zab, Zach Mettenberger vibes where he had this elite college team and he put up incredible numbers but doesn't really have what it takes to be a pro starter. I don't – think it's he's Zach Mettenberger uh he's not that bad I think we can ponder all day about him going to a different franchise and and potentially like the what ifs of let's say he gets drafted to the Steelers and sits for a year and then gets real coaching coaching that's stable that's been there for 20 or 15 years I think 
and they're not going to give up on, I mean, they didn't give up on um, what's his face. Oh my God. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Who's the guy that backed up uh, Roethlisberger? Oh, um, Mason Rudolph. Mason Rudolph. God, I can't believe I forgot his name. He looked like shit for three years and they still kept him on the roster for three years. A franchise that's actually going to try and develop you over a long period of time versus throw you into hellfire like the Bears did with Fields. You know, we can ponder those what ifs. I think Fields has talent. I just I think I'm ready to call him a dud for that franchise. And I want to see him go somewhere else. Like I want to see him get out or get a real coach, get a real difference maker. But, you know, it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year I just I I don't know what I don't know what the Bears are going to do because if do you give up on fields if he continues to not show legitimate gainful improvement this year I don't think he can but I I just don't know I don't know where where they go from there I I just I'm not a believer in fields as it stands right now I don't think he's going to be that guy for the Bears I mean if he had any shot this offseason I think ruined it for him you hire a defensive-minded head coach, you don't address your offensive line, and you have no wide receivers for him. There was no attempt to get better. I think he's literally made 45 attempts so far through three weeks. I know they played in the monsoon week one, but that is an offense that's basically saying, we don't trust you as it sits. I'm very annoyed with that. To the Zach Mettenberger point, whoever came up with that, it bothers me just because Mettenberger, LSU's offense was elite in spite of him. Whereas the Buckeyes offense with Fields was elite in large part because of Justin Fields. That's where I struggle with that comparison. But it doesn't matter because, again, they've done everything in their power to make sure that he fails and that this organization stays exactly where they are. Two and one, but it certainly don't feel like it. Philadelphia is three and oh. Go Birds. The revenge game for Carson Wentz. At one point, David, in this game, the Eagles had 323 passing yards, and the Washington Commanders had negative one. Unbelievable. Fly, birds, fly. Let's go, Eagles. Look, the fall of – I don't even care about the game. The fall of Carson Wentz has been enjoyable to me, not because I hate Carson Wentz, but because I had to listen to the Cleveland media pretend they were dunking on the Cleveland franchise for two years because, you know, they thought – Cleveland passing on him was, you know, yet again, another organizational failure, but turns out Sashi is still King and Carson Wentz sucks. Go Browns. Go Browns. There you go. You got your win. You get to be happy today. We'll get to that here in a minute. Cincinnati 27, New York Jets 12. Bengals get right. This game really wasn't ever that close. I know it turns out to be a two possession game. Never even felt like that. The Jets are in a world of trouble. If it wasn't for that, Miracle win in Cleveland. We're talking about 0-3 and kind of, I think, without too much pushback, the worst team in the NFL without question. I think this game, I, I think somehow I managed to figure out everything before the game about the Bengals and Jets. Getting into, you know, Joe Burrow thriving against all the defenses that the Jets are are playing this year and and picking my prop, get, prop bet, which turned out to be real four times over I think he had a pass over 35 yards which was also the first passes he's thrown over 30 yards all season this game made me re- made me remember who the Bengals actually were uh which is a phenomenal football team when the coaching is right which is key because as we talked about on the last podcast 
our boy Zach ain't the ain't the answer in Cincinnati, and I'm afraid he's going to be there long enough to hurt this team while they have Burrow on a rookie contract. I'm afraid that it's going to hurt this team with a big smile on his face, he says. I will mention, since this Thursday, we're going to not be able to do the preview until afterwards. This is the Bengals whiteout week against the Dolphins, and I am some kind of excited, not only for the uniforms. I don't know if you saw, they painted the end zones and they painted midfield to be all white too. I'm fired up for Thursday. I didn't see that, but now I'm excited for the game as well. I I didn't see the end zones were painted. The aesthetics look amazing already. I hope they do a second coat because you can kind of see the orange poking through right now, but I'm sure they just wanted to get people excited with the first paint out there, which I get, which I get. Unfortunately for me, Atlanta walks into Seattle. It felt like I was going to be able to dunk on the podcast for the second time in three weeks with Seattle driving down the field. They had a play that got inside the five. It looked like a win was inevitable, but a hold was on the play. Fourth and 18 ended up happening a few plays later. Seattle doesn't come out on top. And I'm hurting, David. I I really wanted to to believe that Seattle could, you know, be be a flirtatious eight or nine win team this year. And I'm starting to doubt it. I'm not. No, I both these teams are surprisingly good for how bad I thought they were going to be. But that's all I got. I mean, both these both these teams are like going to stay in games, but they're not going to win half of them. They're going to probably lose more than they win, obviously, but they'll do a lot better than I thought they were going to do. I mean, the fact that those two defenses were letting those offenses walk up and down the field is a big problem for both teams. Oh, yeah. You know what that means, though, David? We finally got through that bullshit, which means we are into the week three recap, and we have to start with the Thursday night game. I know it feels good. You got to see your Cleveland Browns win their fifth straight Thursday night game, all of them ironically at home. Don't know how that's happened, but keep that secret going because it's a lot of fun to watch Cleveland in these primetime games. 29-17. Nick Chubb's the dude, but what are your big takeaways? Jacoby Brissett doesn't look that bad, David. Look, I'm still off of the Jacoby Brissett train, but he had an incredible game. I'll give him that. He played a wonderful game. Cooper and Njoku were phenomenal, were the guys who we thought they were. I think I'm ready to get on the reactionary fan train and say that Prefer needs to go. They almost gave up another freaking onside kit, like another one second week in a row and it's because their formation sucks it's it it just looks like a line across the field like they're preparing for them to kick it both ways but I gotta be honest if the kicker has to turn mid kick to kick it in the direction we're not expecting I got better odds than they do like I just I don't understand why we just have a line across the field with no second like There's no secondary defense behind that line to catch the balls that are perfectly kicked over the heads of the first line of defense. Like I'm, I'm struggling to understand what he's doing because for the last two years, it's all been shit. It has all been awful special teams wise. You can make an argument in the return game that we haven't had a like legit returner because Felton always feels a little scary when he's back there, but like, I don't know. I'm kind of out on him. Like everything has been crap for two years. He hasn't shown me any, any real life that there's legitimate strategy behind what he's doing. 
And that second almost give up onside kick almost made me like, I think I had a, a, what started to feel like a heart attack when that ball went past the first line of defense, because like, Oh my God, it's happening again to our biggest rivals in history and two weeks in a row. And Oh, by the way, we were up by, you know, 10 points, 14, whatever we were up by. And it's like, I can't believe this is happening again. I can't believe it's happening again. Why is this happening? And, you know, I, I'm just, I'm so done. If I see another onside kick that even looks remotely like it's going to be gotten by the team that kicked it, I, I'm, I may not watch special teams plays again. I, I may just turn the TV off while Prefer's got his team out there. Not to poke fun at you guys, but it really does have this feel where every team in the NFL with onside kicks, it's like a 95% you don't get it success rate. And when you watch the Browns, I don't know if it's because of the belief that if it will, or if something can go wrong, it will with the Browns. But it feels almost like it's like a three-quarter shot that you recover. It's not. It feels like much more up in the air. And to your point, if that onside kick was recovered by the Steelers and they walk down the field and score a touchdown to win the game, that stadium would have been volatile. It would have been so hostile given what happened against the Jets the week before. And that is one of the biggest rivalries in football. And I, I just can't imagine. We talked about last week. It feels like there's a grenade in a closed fist right now at points with that team. And had that been a loss, you could have seen it get ugly, at least for a little while. Well. You, you could have seen it get ugly with the fans, which absolutely would have happened. Uh, a bunch of drunk Cleveland fans on a Thursday night in Cleveland would not have gone well with that loss. But I, you know, you, the season's over if they lose that game. Like, nobody in that locker room believes they're winning games outside of maybe Miles Garrett, who has an always positive, we're going to get this attitude. Like, there might be a couple more of those guys. But like, I mean, this is the easy part of your schedule. Right. Like I, we're out seasons over. You lose two weeks in a row. You're up by 10, 14 points. And then you just collapse in the final five minutes of the game. Season's over. You, the, nobody's mentally recovering for that because the minute it happens again, they're all thinking, what if? And then it's going to happen again. Something needs to change. Like we need to shuffle something up on, on. I'm still the defense looked real good at times in that game. So I'm still not on the reactionary train with uh, Joe Woods or Joe Woods. but. Mike Prefer, I'm out. I, it's been two years. I, I like I've given him all I can give, but like seeing two weeks in a row where the onside kick one gets recovered. Oh, by the way, ten weeks ago it happened in in or a year ago it happened in week ten where we lost an onside kick, and then second week in a row we almost gave up that one. I'm out. Like sent like anyone can come in and do better on on uh, in those formations than than Prefer's doing right now. I don't know what's going on but it needs to change or else I'm ready to kick his ass to the curb. Let's look at this from a Steelers perspective for a minute now. On the flip for them, this is a season that started off on a pretty high note. I know you lose TJ Watt in an opener, but it's a game no one on earth expects you to win. And then you come out and lay two eggs in a row. The defense looks much more human without TJ. And the offense right now is a non-factor. Had it not been for two consecutive drives there in the second quarter, the Steelers didn't do a damn thing on offense in this game. And it makes you wonder, when are they going to pull the trigger on Kenny Pickett? A lot of people are already calling for it. I'm still a believer that you have to wait till the bye. You give him two weeks to prepare. The schedule eases up a little bit because this is an offensive line that's terrible too. 
Where are you at? Do you think Kenny Pickett needs to be in now? Or are you riding with Mitch for a little longer? I'm riding with Mitch for as long as I can with the excuse of, I think you ride with Mitch until you lose these same games with TJ Watt in the lineup. I think without Watt, you're, you lose the bite on defense because they still got a lot of pressure on us. They still did very, very well um, defensively. But what you didn't see was, you know, the three sacks that I'm sure Watt would have gotten if he was in that game that maybe change a touchdown drive, maybe change something about how that game went. And, and particularly a game like that where it's, it feels a lot closer than maybe it was, um, or at least to me, right? Felt a lot closer than maybe it was at times. But I, I just – I think you ride out the excuse of Watt's not here. We're not getting – the same momentum we normally get on defense that transitions to game managing offense, winning us games. I say that twofold because one, because it's true, but two, because God, I don't think Pickett was ready to start in the NFL. If he was, he'd be starting over Trubisky today. And, you know, we just talked about it with fields and, and even well, not, not really Baker, but kind of Baker, but like you really don't want to break the guy before he really learns how to become an NFL quarterback. Right. And, and maybe he's there, maybe I'm wrong. I don't, I don't watch the practices, but I feel like if Tomlin thought he was ready, he'd be starting the games. So I'm just not ready to throw Pickett in there. And kind of like you said before, bye week, like give hold the excuse out that you're out your best player by far. And when he comes back, you're still losing these games. Then it's time to throw Pickett in and see what you got. I'm the biggest Mike Tomlin guy in the world. If Mike Tomlin doesn't think it's time and from all accounts, he didn't have a good camp. He might have balled out in preseason, but it's like people have a hard time getting it through their head. That is not NFL rosters, and it is a different ball game. And here's the thing. If we're wrong and they should have started picket, what's the worst you get out of it? A season that wasn't going to amount anything wasn't as fun for an extra month. That is the only risk in waiting. Because the Steelers aren't, even with Kenny Pickett, if Kenny Pickett comes in and balls, they're not good enough to do anything. Offense yeah. line problems, they can't run the ball, and the defense still has a little bit of question marks when T.J. Watt isn't there. Be and patient. Frankly, it's better off if they're patient too. Let's say Pickett does come in, you know, week 10 and, and plays good enough to where you're ready to start him all of next year. All that means is you've gotten a better draft position to draft a position that fills a major hole like the offensive line or maybe somewhere on the defense where you have a hole, like interior line, right? Like maybe linebacker where you've got guys on one-year contracts, like fill holes with that draft pick rather than worry about, do we need a quarterback again? Just, the, you know, you're in a better position if you just wait, be patient and, and let him develop in practices versus being thrown into a fire. Because if he's thrown into that fire and Pittsburgh, it looks dreadful. The fans will turn on him faster than anything. They'll they'll be ready for Trubisky back, and then it's then they're going to really feel what it's like to be a Cleveland Browns fan for the last twenty years. This is the part, and we'll move on after this. We spent a lot of time talking this game, but I've had Steeler fans tell me they're playing the Jets this week. This is the time to do it. What do they have after the Jets before the bye week? They go to Buffalo. They play Tampa Bay. They go to Miami. They host or they go to Philadelphia too. All of that before the bye. Those are four of the best 10 teams in football. I am not throwing him to the Wolves at the beginning of his career 
it makes no sense. It makes no sense. After the bye, it is so much easier. You have the Saints, who aren't that good. The Bengals, we don't know how good they are still right now. The Colts, Falcons, that's when you do it. That is the four-game stretch you want to introduce him. Whatever. Next AFC North team, you have the Baltimore Ravens, who beat up a little bit on, on the Patriots, at least moved the ball. I, I know the, the yards weren't great, but four Patriot turnovers help you out there. You've got to be fired up because Lamar every Sunday right now is raising the price tag on that contract of his four more touchdowns, another massive day on the ground. According to the AP, he's the first quarterback in NFL history to have two straight games with three or more passing touchdowns, as well as a hundred plus yards on the ground. Lamar Jackson's getting paid, David, and that's got to get you some kind of excited. I'm excited because, uh, you know, even though he's proving me horrifically wrong, which I'm okay with, I, you know, he can play as well as he wants. I, I still don't think he's elite at the quarterback position. He's elite as a runner, and that's that's pretty much it. However, he's proving me wrong through the first three weeks. He's playing unbelievable football. He absolutely deserves to be paid. And you know what? I hope he gets paid more than Deshaun Watson and all guaranteed because that's probably what he's probably somewhere in at this point. The, like if he plays like this for the rest of the season and he's in that MVP conversation again, the Ravens are going to cry that they didn't pay him this past off season because they're going to owe him 250 million fully guaranteed because that's going to be the starting price because that's going to be what a team pays him in the free market just to get him away from Baltimore. All of this is fun right now in regular season two, but what happens if he has an MVP regular season and we see what happens every postseason with the Baltimore Ravens, with Lamar Jackson at the helm, what happens if they lose a game 17 to 14 at home and Lamar Jackson doesn't look good? Do you look at the 17 games or do you look at that one that happens in January? It's an interesting little thought. Other note on the Ravens, Mark Andrews continues to be one of the elite tight ends in football right now. Eight catches, 89 yards, two touchdowns. Brings a very Travis Kelsey-like feel to that offense. Can get it done anywhere. But then on the flip side, New England. I mentioned the four turnovers. Three straight to end the game and four of their last five drives. And not only that, but the last offensive play of the game for New England, Mac Jones gets picked off and he gets a nasty ankle injury as well. You could see how bad it was beating him up as he was walking off the field had a really brutal expression on his face. They believe it's a pretty severe high ankle sprain, which means he might actually need surgery. IR very possible. The Patriots season, is it done before it's already gotten started? I think so, because I think they were a 500 team to begin with, and you lose Mac Jones, who gets you to that 500 point. Their next four games, Packers, Lions, Browns, Bears. Without Mac Jones, they probably still beat the Bears and probably lose to the other three, if we're being honest. If the Lions continue to put up unbelievable offensive numbers, I I think they still lose. They they really only beat the Bears there. So I, I don't like seeing Mac Jones hurt. He's not going to be a world beater for the Patriots, but if the Patriots put a surrounding cast around him, he's good enough to get them into the playoffs and maybe win a game or two. But it's tough. I, I don't think they're – I think their season's over, as you said it, with Mac Jones out. And it sucks, too, because it did feel like the offense was getting a little things going. When they were protecting the ball, whether it be Devontae Parker, Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, they had pieces moving. 
So at least you have that to hang your hat on. If you are a Patriots fan, the future is still there. It just, you, you hit pause for a little bit. Let's keep it out. East AFC East Buffalo in Miami. There could be case studies done on this game. We'll start with the ugly part first, and then we'll go back and talk football. The NFL PA is investigating Tua's injury, and I wanted to throw it to you right away, David, because I thought you had some interesting thoughts on this. So I think the Dolphins could be actually in serious trouble after this. I wasn't thinking that at first because, you know, you you, you think about their new rules with an independent doctor out on the field, clearing people, whatnot, but – you know, I listened to Emmanuel Acho, who say what you want about sometimes he's a gaslighter, sometimes he's spot on. But all he did was say a, a memory of his playing in the NFL, which is he once got a concussion and they pulled him off the field. They asked him who was the president, which he had known for three years. Not a hard question. And what day is it? And his response was, well, it's it's Sunday because I'm playing football. And then they cleared him to go back out there. And then after the game, he didn't know where his house was. Let's say that's the case for Tua. Let's say they cleared him with stupid questions like that. And then he's actually got a concussion after the game. Well, you haven't heard about it by now, which means the Dolphins are now going to try and cover that up from that investigation. And that's the case. And that investigation exposes it. Dolphins are in for a world of draft punishment, of fines, uh, coaching staff probably getting suspended, just a whole world of hurt. And God, that video, man, he did not look like he should come in that game. Let's say, you know, he did, he could come back in that game. My head as a coach, and maybe it's because I've been scarred by player injuries in the past, but what are you doing? It's a week three game against Buffalo. I don't care that it's your division rival. I don't care who it is. It's week three. You've got a whole season to go. Why are you throwing him back out there? Who cares if you lose the game because he's not in there? Seriously, who cares? It's week three. Why would you, if I'm watching him stumble off the field, sit out. You're done for the day. Well, even if you don't have a concussion, sit out. I don't need you getting hurt. We need you for the rest of the season. And if I'm a coach and I believe that he's the franchise guy, like McDaniel believes that he that he is, why would I risk head injuries this early on in the career? Last thing you need is a guy going into concussion protocol often because he's gotten hit one too many times and I've covered it up or maybe not covered it up, but pushed him back out there. I just can't everything about the situation. I can't believe nothing like that is just bad game day decision-making from an injury standpoint. My only thought is that it's going to be really hard to prove the Dolphins wrong here. If it is an independent study guy or an independent doctor that allowed him to go back out, I really don't see how you can enforce on the Dolphins, even if they were pushy, because all it would have taken is the doctor saying he's not allowed to go back in. I think there's something wrong. If they pushed and he caved that doctor, she caved, whoever it is, then all of a sudden it goes on that person. And I think that's the one that is going to have the biggest, I guess, potential penalty I think the Dolphins did what most NFL teams probably do, and they wanted to win the game and put his health second, and that's not good. But it, I think it is the reality of the NFL that we live in. I mean, this is the same league that will throw a, a shot of Tordal in your side and say, get back out there, man, good luck. So it's not 
a good look for Miami, but I don't think that you're going to see any fallout. Uh, who knows? I don't know for sure. But as a, a guy that's not a doctor, it certainly didn't look like a back injury. Well, let's say let's get into uh, some fun parts about this game, the actual football parts of it. I've got a couple things I got to throw out because, again, I mentioned that this game should be a case study because it was that bizarre. To say that the Bills shot themselves in the foot on Sunday is such an understatement. They had 90 offensive plays. Miami had 39. The Bills had 497 yards. Miami had 212. Buffalo had 40 minutes and 40 seconds of time of possession. Miami had 19 minutes and 20 seconds. They let both halves clock expire when they were in field goal range because of poor clock management. They had nine total drives. I'm just going to say the results of these drives to you so you can get an idea at home what this offense was doing. Touchdown drive. Fumble inside their own 10. Miami scores a touchdown going off of that. Touchdown. Punt. End of the half, again in field goal range. Here are your four second half drives where the Bills got five total points. 87-yard field goal drive. 60-yard missed field goal drive. 73 yards turnover on downs. And 36 yards to end the game where you aren't able to get the clock stopped. And then you see Glenn Dorsey short circuit in the booth, which I can't even blame him. If I was an offensive coordinator, Buffalo is... They lost this game. Miami, credit to them, last undefeated team in the AFC. This only solidified my thoughts on Buffalo. I think that it makes me even more sure that this is the team that's going to win the AFC East. They dominate every facet of the, the game in this one, David. My head can't wrap around why they lost, so I'm just going to focus in on one thing, which is they let the clock expire in both halves, and it's unbelievable to me that coaches continue to fail in the aspect of time and game management. You could spend a week studying best practices of game and time management, and you'd be better than 99% of the NFL coaching staffs out there. And I just don't understand it. It's a colossal advantage if you know how to manage your clock and when to call timeouts. I just, it, it blows my mind. And I focus in on that point because, again, Nothing makes sense about the statistics in this game and how the Bills shot themselves in the foot so many times after being miles and miles ahead of the Dolphins. Our next game, we go to another AFC Super Bowl threat, or at least a team we are pretty used to calling a Super Bowl threat, and that's the Kansas City Chiefs. Traveled to Indianapolis. I have to give like a slight pat on my back, but also I'm mad at myself because to my own words, I was a coward on Thursday's show and didn't take Indianapolis to win the game outright when they did. So the Colts defense won this game. The offense is still a travesty. 259 yards allowed, 259 yards in this game. They allowed five sacks for the second straight week. Matt Ryan looks pretty rattled from that. But I think the biggest takeaway for me is that the Chiefs, now for the second straight year, have put together stretches where the offense doesn't look like we're used to seeing. How worried should the Chiefs be? Is this just growing pains with new offensive parts, or is there something more to this? We did see Eric Bieniemy and Patrick Mahomes getting a shouting match on Sunday before half. 
not everything's perfect in uh, Kansas City right now. I think the biggest the biggest problem right now is kicking. Their kicking is the reason they lost. Butker's there, and they probably win that game by a point, or at least they're going into overtime. And what concerns me to this point about the Chiefs is I don't think it's growing pains. I really, after seeing those two argue outside the tunnel, and, and after that video went viral, and then seeing Shady McCoy comment and saying BME is only there to argue with players and doesn't know how to run an offense and doesn't know what he's doing confirms my belief that reads a mastermind, but also makes me wonder what the hell he's doing. Because realistically, if you get an offensive coordinator in there that can actually help you game plan and actually help you with game day decisions and actually benefit your players and hold the torch for your players, you're probably twice the team you are now, which is even a scary thought. But there are some growing pains there. It's a whole new receiving core, essentially. Not whole new, but pretty damn close. They definitely miss Tyreek Hill a little bit, but I don't think, you know, again, I don't think Tyreek Hill is the difference maker that it might lead to believe. I think there's some internal pains right now with this organization that were caught for the first time on camera. And I am a little curious to see how that plays out, but I'm not worried about the chiefs. They're still sorry to say it, but they're definitely going to win that division unless oh, yeah. Pat Mahomes goes down. Maybe they're not the super bowl team. Maybe we're onto something with the bills there, but that team's not going anywhere. They're unbelievable. And they'll be the winner of that division. As long as Mahomes is there. I mean, if they're this offense is the doomsday offense, it is kind of alarming because they're still moving the ball. They're still, making things happen yeah a couple they're, they're a little they're off they're just a little off on certain plays they are settling for field goals where we're not used to seeing them do that sometimes red zone drives haven't really worked out like we're used to seeing Andy Reid's usually scheming up weird ways to get into the end zone but you had a great point them having Matt Amendola who just got cut about an hour ago so I don't know who's going to be the kicker there next week if it's a new guy new face like that or if you're a Chiefs fan, you're hoping that Harrison Bucker's back. But if you're looking at this from a Colts angle now, yes, you win this game. Yes, you are half a game out of first place now. But your offense is a joke. The line doesn't look good. Matt Ryan looks rattled. And when he isn't getting hit, he doesn't look as crisp or, or I guess, in locked in with this offense as we expected him to. Jonathan Taylor, they're going away from him too much. I said it before, but this is an offense at 259 yards in this game. Had it not been for Sky Moore's muff kick and Matt Amendola not knowing how to kick the ball, the Colts don't win. And they're 0-2-1, and it feels like an awful uphill climb, especially when you look at Jacksonville, which we'll get into a little bit, looking like the real deal as well. The Colts feel like they're still in an uphill climb, even though they have a win now. I think Matt, like that, something's wrong with the offensive line. That that is that team. We were talking about that offensive line being like fringe top five, maybe top five. What two years ago? Don't really know what's going on there. But Matt Ryan doesn't look himself. I don't think it's because of the age. I think to your point, he might just be rattled with how much he's getting hit. But the offense doesn't make sense. It feels like it feels like a coaching problem because you have. The roster, you have the talent on that offense between Matt Ryan, Jonathan Taylor, some of those offensive linemen even, 
and Michael Pittman, you have talent. And, and to your point, you brought it up last week as what you were hoping they would do, which is get behind Jonathan Taylor again. They need to take some notes from the Browns, which is force it down the throat, create a reason to stop the run, and then throw the ball. Like, get behind your running back and, like, you know, you just – you got to do something different because what they're doing right now isn't working. And it just feels like they need to give Taylor 25 touches a game, see what works from there. You brought up the Browns. Good comp or comparison to getting Nick Chubb the ball. I'd even take it a step farther and compare it to last year's Philadelphia Eagles team. The first half of the year, they didn't know what their identity was. It was like they didn't realize that they had Maulers on that offensive line. Quentin Nelson is one of the best guards in football. There are pieces there. They just have to commit to their identity being behind Jonathan Taylor. To your point, I think that at some point it has to happen. Because Matt Ryan, regardless of his age, if he's declining, if it's the line, you make his job easier when you commit to the run and you're able to move the ball. You go back to week one when they came back in the fourth quarter, they didn't do that on Matt Ryan's arm. They did that running the ball. They were down 17 points and were able to run themselves back into the game. That's how special Jonathan Taylor is. And that's why I really like the Browns comparison because I think those two running backs might be the two guys in the league right now that you can win on their backs. Detroit went to Minnesota, and my God, we can't say anything nice about Detroit because as soon as we do, it's like, it's the Raiders, it's the Browns, it's that kind of mentality where they were up 10 points in the fourth quarter in this game, and they outplayed the Vikings throughout. But they still fall short, and a large part of that, Dan Campbell, credit to him for at least owning it, was his fault. It was his decision with a minute and 18 seconds left to have Austin Sieber. That I think he's a former Brown. I might have been making that up. Is oh, he's he? a former Brown. Okay. Yeah. It, that's where it's like ingrained in my head where former Brown kicker, let's not do 54 yard field goal end the game. Like we galaxy brain this and he tried to be too smart. I would have, first of all, I would have gone for it on fourth and four. You try to end the game. Even if you don't do that, because a couple minutes before that, they did have a fourth and one where they could have put the game away. Credit to the Vikings, they stuffed them. You punt the ball. You pin them back deep, and you hand the defense that's been dog shit all year a 90-yard field opposed to a 55-yard field where you have to hold them late. I suppose you got to give credit to the Vikings, but, man, it feels like the Lions are so close, and they just haven't figured out how to win yet. I think you're right. So if you if you watch the game, they went up, what, 14 nothing. Then they let the Vikings back into the game before half, and I think it went into half tied. Then coming out of the half, again, scored, I think, 10 or 14 straight points, 10, 10 straight points, and then, again, let the Vikings right back into the game. That's a product of being young and not being a winning football team, and you get up. You start feeling comfortable rather than feeling like you still need to put your foot on their throats and and continue to score. And maybe I'm wrong there. I didn't watch the full game because I was bouncing between games, but just feels like that's the product of a young team that has a very, very, very talented offense and a horrific defense. This team needs defense so badly. Although Jeff Akuda 
actually looked like a top five pick in that game against arguably the best receiver in football, probably second or third behind Adams, but he looked great. So that's a positive sighting if he can hold that. But this defense, I mean, they need they need pieces and they need it bad. And that's good. It's going to hold Detroit back ultimately all year round because this offense looks unbelievable out the gates. I'm so happy you brought up the Jeffrey Okuda thing because that really was the takeaway for me in this game. He's a guy that we basically stamped bust on that pick. He's not looked good. He did not look confident in his first couple of years. He's a guy that on the field trusted his abilities on Sunday. He trusted his coaching where he's supposed to be. And to your point, Justin Jefferson, only the six catches, 48 yards. Oh, excuse me. That was uh, last week, the six catches, 48 yards. He only had three catches for 14 yards this week. So if you're looking for a silver lining, that's got to be it if you're a Detroit fan. The other one, the sun god, Amon Ross St. Brown, he avoided really bad news where it looked like he might have had an injury that could have kept him out. He came back, and he's still looking like kind of that new wave of a wide receiver that's going to jump into the top 15, top 20 discussions. So a lot of things to be encouraged about, but at some point – you got to start winning games if you're Dan Campbell and the Lions. Speaking of franchises that don't win games that are learning to, Jacksonville went to Duval West, L.A., beat the shit out of the Chargers, 38-10. to And I want to start with the Jaguars because it's gonna we're going to get back to the injuries and the Chargers having the worst franchise luck on earth for any sport but we have to start by giving the flowers to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Trevor Lawrence looks like he has taken about 10 steps from last year to this year. He's not being asked to do crazy things yet. And that'll come in time. He's got so much talent. It'll be obvious that it'll eventually click to that next level. But right now he's protecting the ball in the Jaguars. Defense looks good. The offense is running behind James Robinson I, I'm struggling to find negatives to talk about. I think they're, to me, I after three weeks, I'm ready to say they're my AFC South favorite right now. How about no, you? It's, it's absolutely accurate. Unless the Colts get their shit together, that division probably belongs to the Jaguars, which is, uh, it's it's a sentiment to to Doug Peterson because this solidifies him as, as a phenomenal coach in the NFL. Maybe not elite like your Andy Reeds or or – those guys but he's he's he can make your franchise a winner christian kirk he saw all the hatred in his contract and he's turned it into something trevor lawrence finally looks like an nfl quarterback i might be really really wrong on him every time i see james robinson i just want to make the joke that like remember that time that urban meyer drafted a running back in the first round when he already had an all pro this whole every time like for the remainder of the season every time the jaguars win a game Urban Meyer becomes more unhirable at any level of football. I just colossal, colossal fuck up of a coaching hire was Urban Meyer. I just this team, this team had the talent mostly all along, and and they looked like the worst team in history last year. And now suddenly they're they're potentially the division winners with really minor additions. It, I mean, it really speaks to. I know that we hate the word culture sometimes in NFL because it's overplayed and people just lean on it when they don't have a talking point, but there is something to healthy cultures and negative cultures where 
teams like the Browns, teams like the Raiders, teams like the Lions, there is such an ingrained, we're going to find a way to lose. Our fan base is ready to turn on us at any second that that matters. And when you flip it to the positive too, that must feel like the biggest and darkest cloud is gone. I mean, that's the only positive you can say about the Urban Meyer tenure is that it was so aggressively bad that it only lasted such a short period of time that they were able to salvage Trevor Lawrence. And my God, this, there's again, only so much, you can only say good things right now about the Jaguars and Doug Peterson, to your point, I think you can make the case he's an elite coach to win not only a Super Bowl in Philadelphia, where again, there was a culture of losing, the expectation of failure. And now he's going to do it at another franchise. If they win the South, they don't even have to win a playoff game. It is already such a home run hire. Even if they kind of disappoint the next couple of years, he's got them back on track and they salvaged a quarterback that we really thought might've been ruined in 12 games under Urban Meyer. Well, what's interesting, let's say they win the South. I think that's the most interesting team going into the draft of next year because they've got pieces at most of the important positions, which allows you so much freedom in the draft. If Trevor Lawrence continues, no quarterback means, wow, oh, your, your sights just open up. You know, you don't have to reach early on, whatever. No running back, which means, wow, you know what? Maybe you draft a backup in the seventh round and you find somebody there. What do you draft? A little bit of offensive line, which will fall to you. A little bit of defensive line, which could fall to you. You're not going to get the best players in the draft, but you're going to get solidified starters in the late first round. This team, Dougie P doesn't have, you know, his GMs don't have a history of drafting super well, but let's say this one figures it out. And suddenly the Jaguars are maybe the most interesting team of the offseason. You just made it move. Anytime we bring up the NFL draft, you get me revved up. But you're right. Not only if they do avoid, whether it be offense or defensive line, you have the luxury of taking a wide receiver probably in that 20-ish range where that's typically where the the second, third wide receivers are going to be in the draft. Who knows? Maybe that's a Jackson Smith and Jigba. That might be a Jordan Addison. There are a lot of wide receivers. And nowadays, outside of Jalen Rieger, sorry, Stephen at home taking strays, there have not been a lot of misses in first or second rounds in the last few years. The wide receiver position is so well scouted now. And they're using these young guys early. They don't like make them wait to get in. That could be a way that the Jaguars with Trevor Lawrence, you marry them early. You get the Joe Burrow, T. Higgins, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase connection. And who knows, the Jaguars might be a team that we're talking about as a Super Bowl contender for 10 plus years starting in the next year. But let's talk about the Chargers real quick and then we'll move on again. We're talking a lot of time on this game, but it was just such a, a shock, at least to me, that you have to give the, the credit to the Jaguars. And now we have to talk about the other side. And I get to do the, I feel terrible about this with the grin on my face. The Chargers, new year, same story. Let me give you a couple things here, David, and I, I want to get your thoughts on how you even fix this. Rashawn Slater today, devastating news. He's one of the best young tackles in football. Ruptured his bicep. He's done for the year. Justin Herbert, we all know about his cracked ribs. He didn't look like the same player. He looks timid. He looks like he's avoiding taking hits to protect himself. 
And that's when you get a different quarterback. And I hate that as well. You sit out, you get healthy, you come back and you play. Joey Bosa made out of glass. I love him. Buckeye product, but a significant groin injury yet again. Jalen Guyton tore his ACL. Keenan Allen still dealing with his hamstring. JC Jackson still hasn't played a game this year. And Corey Lindsley, a fringe all-pro center, is still sitting out. The Chargers feel cursed. I don't know how they're even – this is a team that might make the playoffs, David. That's how injury depleted they are right now. They have to get healthy fast, or we might be talking about another what if. Look, I said it last week. This coaching staff needs to get their heads on straight. Sit, Herbert. Now that everyone is out, lose your games. Get your franchise quarterback who is top seven quarterback in the NFL. Maybe higher. Healthy. Because the longer you do this where he goes and he takes the shot of tour at all before the game just so he can move and be about, one day, if you continue to play him hurt, he's going to get drilled by some defensive end and he's going to break ribs and he's going to be forced out for weeks on weeks on weeks. Get your quarterback healthy. Take the L's. Your The whole team's hurt, it feels like. You know, Allen's, like you said, Allen's been out for two games. Bosa's now going to be out for at least a game. You know, I, I just, this team, I don't understand it. You said they might be cursed. It feels like since LT was there, this team on paper has had a top five roster probably 75% of the years that I've been watching football. And then every year, Quentin Jammer goes out. Phillip Rivers tears his ACL. You've got ungod Sean Merriman's out for, for 10 games. You've got cornerstone pieces of the franchise, Derwin James. You've just got, like, I could, you just like these names just appear because you just see them on the injury list. And it's not for, it's not like Julio Jones where you're, you're tweaking your hamstring and you're still playing every week and and you might be out for a game or two. It's like the, all these guys go out for, for six games at a time and this team ends up underperforming year after year after year because of it. And I don't, I don't get it because it's not, you know, I said it, it's not the same players. It's not Derwin James isn't on the injury report. Like it's not the same guys year after year. It feels like every year there's a new cornerstone piece of the franchise that's hurt, whether it be, you know, your all pro safety, your franchise quarterback, your all pro receiver. Every year it's something different and something new. And I, I feel for them, not really that badly, but I feel for them because if I was a fan of this team, it would be like one of the 87, it would be, but it'd be like the constant, it would be the constant Jesus Christ. Like what if we could just stay healthy? We'd win a Super Bowl type feeling. And Again, like on paper, this team is a Super Bowl team. Like it doesn't, I just like, I feel for them, but I don't. It, it's just, it doesn't make sense long-term. The only thing I can put it out there is I would be screaming in the coaching staff's ear, sit Herbert. I don't care if he doesn't want to sit. He's not playing until he can move without painkillers. Like I just sit him. It's, you're not hurting you're not hurting your team long term. You're hurting your team long term if you can if you continue to get 50% quality out of Herbert versus 100% quality out of Chase Daniel. Like it's the same player. You're getting the same caliber player only you're healing your franchise quarterback to help you win the end of the season. 
the second half of the season, if Herbert's at 100%, you could you have the talent to win 100% of those games. If he's at 50%, say goodnight to your season. Just rest him for four weeks. This isn't hard. This is like math. It's just math. Like do the math and sit your quarterback for four weeks, get him healthy, and then get him out there at 100% so he can win you games. I, I have two quick things, and we'll move on. It, both about Herbert. This is just, I know this sounds stupid. Like out loud when you say it, it doesn't sound smart what I'm about to say, but I truly believe it. Sometimes when you have a guy like Justin Herbert and you sit him, it's almost a blessing in disguise for a team like this because you have to be perfect in all facets of the game. There's almost like a, a hyper focus to do your job all of a sudden. Where right now, Justin Herbert playing when he's banged up, you still think, all right, well, I can afford to maybe take a chance on this play as a defender because we have Justin Herbert. It's no problem. But the other thing that killed me in this game is that they were playing Justin Herbert down 28 with less than five minutes to go. What on, about that? Like, how is that even a thing when you know he's already banged up? There's no upside. I didn't see the final drive. I don't know if they pulled him. But they were down 28 with less than five minutes left in playing him. That is an indictment on the coaching. It's terrible. I, if you're 100% right, you got to sit him. You, you are not only mortgaging this season, you're mortgaging more than that if you keep playing him and allow him to establish bad habits. Terrible idea. All right, let's get to our last three games, and we promise these will be quicker because even though they were all fun matchups on paper, that's where the fun stopped with the 4 o'clock slate in the night game. The Green Bay Packers go to Tampa Bay, Stevens boys get it done. They get it done. They beat Tom Brady in the Bucks behind two touchdowns on their first two drives and then do nothing else. This was a painful game to watch because we knew going in there were going to be a lot of wide receivers out. But it crippled both of these offenses. Neither quarterback looked great. The only thing I guess you can say is if you're a Packer fan, you're fired up that you think you might have found the next wide receiver in Romeo Dobbs. But what was your takeaways from this? Is this a game that you don't feel like you learn a lot or are you impressed with the defenses here or what other takeaways? The only takeaway is the one you just mentioned, which is Dobbs is he's going to be something special uh, for Aaron Rodgers. Maybe not a top 10 receiver in the league, but he's going to be good and, and potentially great. But both these teams just feel like they're, a shell of what like just a shell of themselves compared to last year Tom Brady and that offense looks terrible uh, I know he's without his receivers this game but you know it's not like last game he was he was prolific either so I just there's something there's something wrong with with the Tampa Bay chemistry on offense or I don't know what it is I can't tell but there's just something wrong Packers feel like their offense is putting it together a little bit, but they still feel slow. I give them the benefit of the doubt because the whole receiver room feels new. This game was ugly. It was like two giants that are playing like Davids, two Goliaths that are playing like small teams. I, I just, I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense. It was a tough watch. I think a lot of us were excited because we know that this is very likely the last Aaron and Rodgers, Tom Brady matchup we'll ever see. And we almost kind of got robbed. And especially at the end, because you thought, well, you know what? If this game didn't, wasn't entertaining, but Tom Brady leads the Bucks down the field. They score and get the two-point conversion and go to overtime. 
it could have gave us some special theater, but instead they don't get the two point conversion and Aaron Rodgers doing typical Aaron Rodgers thing took credit for it as if he was on the field by saying that I saw something and pointed it out. Let's go to the next game. Not a lot to talk about here either. The Los Angeles Rams defending Super Bowl champions. Their offense did a little better in this, I suppose. They beat the, the Arizona Cardinals 20 to 12 on the road. I mean, we expected the Cardinals in their struggles this year, especially without DeAndre Hopkins. But what is wrong with the Rams? I mean, they go up 13-0 on scores on each of their first three possessions, but then they had one touchdown, only scoring drive in their last five. I, I don't really know what to say. I am kind of stunned that the Rams are kind of taking a step back and the, the Cardinals took about eight steps back. I got to be honest with you. Didn't watch this game at all. Don't really know what's wrong with the Rams. Feels like a feels like a hangover. Kind of just Might feels, feels kind of like, hey, we did it. I don't know. I, both these teams just perplex me. The Rams feel like they should be way better than they are, but but maybe maybe I remember last year wrong. I, I feel like last year they were cruising. But maybe maybe I'm just remembering it wrong. Maybe this is just the Rams, and then they turn it on late. But something something doesn't jive there, and the only thing that makes sense is is Aaron Donald, and that's because he's just a freak of nature. Glad you brought him up. He's the fastest defensive tackle now. He's 31 years old, but he's the fastest defensive tackle to reach 100 career sacks. There's nothing. I feel like we we've said it all about Aaron Donald. He's one of the best defense players of all time. I think there's plenty of people and a lot of analytic people that would make a case. He is the best defensive player ever. He's so much fun to watch. You know, you're going to get doubled and he still produces, but then go to the Cardinals. I mean, they have no running game whatsoever. They think that they're going to be able to win with Kyler throwing it 50 times a game, 60 times a game. James Connor, he's who we thought he was. He, he 13 carries 39 yards. It's what he does. He doesn't, break tackles he has no vision he's good for about three three and a half yards of carry i i've got nothing else on this game i think both of these teams are kind of what we saw yesterday the cardinals aren't good when they get hopkins back perhaps they'll turn it on but i don't see it they'll miss the playoffs and i tell you what the the nfc west much like the afc west talk about a disappointment in the last game of the week, Sunday night football that we're talking about anyways, has a team from both of those divisions. And to further go into how poorly these divisions have been, this game was the perfect representation of it. The Broncos beat the 49ers 11-10. to 10. They were up 10-5, to 5, the 49ers that is, until the Broncos got a 12-play 80-yard touchdown drive with about four minutes left. I got nothing here, man. This is... The Broncos look terrible. I don't know if that's a Nathaniel Hackett problem. I don't know if that's a Russell Wilson problem. But I am gloating and, and smiling, and I'm feeling so great because the Broncos are such a fraud. Last note, and I'll throw it over to you, and I'll just leave it kind of an open canvas. You can talk about whatever you want. But we had our second hilarious safety of the day. Mark Sanchez and Dan Orlovsky both kind of got the snide, got off of that unfortunate – Reputation, Dan Orlovsky running through the back of the end zone with the safety, Jimmy G. Then also earlier in the day, didn't bring it up in the Bills game. You had the, the butt punt turned into a safety, and both Mark Sanchez and Dan Orlovsky 
were taking victory laps on Twitter, feeling like they finally can put those to bed. What do you have to say about this game? I, I can't imagine either team is leaving feeling that great. There's a lot of question marks with both these teams. I'd like to think San Francisco is just returning to Jimmy G stardom, which is keeps them in games, wins some, loses others, just good enough to make it interesting. The Broncos look still look terrible. I, I think Russell Wilson and and we can debate this at, at his peak. He was fringe seven or eight top quarterback in the NFL for me and probably right in that range, right? Probably at the time there wasn't a spread of elite quarterbacks, especially the young ones like Mahomes, Herbert, whatever. So probably was in that seven range, but I think people probably overrated him at that time. But to me, it feels like he's fallen from, above average fringe elite player to game manager. And I don't know if he gets better without putting even better talent around him per se, but I think the Broncos are going to regret that contract in about two years, but with the talent on the roster, he makes them somewhat interesting, but they're not good. They're, they're just not good right now on paper. They are interesting on in reality. They're ugly. The defense will continue to bail them out of games. So who knows? Maybe if Russell Wilson continues to be a game manager, they're good enough to win nine games, 10 games. But I think that's a stretch with how that offense is playing right now. It's just something needs to change. And it feels like it's all Wilson's fault. There's just a lot of ugly, just a lot of ugly on the Broncos. I love every second of it, too. What I will say is that this was supposed to be a Ferrari offense. It was supposed to be this great offensive line, he was going to have weapons all over the field, whether it be running backs where Devontae Williams has really been splitting time. I think probably more than a lot of people expected. Melvin, I almost said Ingram, but Melvin Gordon, he's been okay. The line's been all right. The wide receivers, outside of Cortland Sutton, there wasn't a wide receiver that had more than two catches yesterday. This is awesome. I am loving the, I guess, inadequacy of this offense. It makes you wonder if Wilson was drafted somewhere else without LOB, are we talking about him in a very different light today than we would have been, or I guess we have been the last 10 years. Being a third-round pick, it was one of those rare cases. It worked out perfectly for him. He fell in, I think, the perfect spot. He's got time to figure it out in Denver, and he's got time to change the narrative. It's only been three games. But it's been a, a very alarming three games. I will say, uh, since you brought up Melvin Gordon, I found before the season started, he was he had one of the most interesting statistics that I could that, that I would have never guessed for anyone outside of like Derrick Henry or Nick Chubb who didn't even fall in like the top five. I think Melvin Gordon over I think it was over the last three years takes negative yardage less than any other running back in the NFL. Like he's statistically more like going to get to the line of scrimmage or after more than anyone else. And he's not elite, but damn it. it he feels like when you need, when you need that yardage, he's there for you. That's an interesting stat. And plus 
falling forward's a real thing. Being that guy that's strong enough to take the hit and still be able to get half a yard, an extra yard, it's a great spell with Javante. And I, I do think that he's going to probably have more increasing usage as the year goes on. Our guy, Benjamin Albright, brought it up that he thinks that it's more of a protect him for a playoff push. So Melvin Ingram, Mel, I did it again. Melvin <laughs> Gordon is like the perfect other guy to have there. Now here, we're going to go to the last game. We're not going to talk about it. If you guys want to hear, we did on Monday or Thursday, excuse me, of last week. But Dallas and New York, David, give me a score. You still riding high with, I believe, the uh, Cowboys? God, I, I I hate this game. I, I hate this game so much. I hate that I'm going to go watch it. I'm probably still riding. I don't know. I don't feel like the Giants. What The Giants can go, is it 3-0 and if they win this game? Yes, it is. Uh, it doesn't feel right. I'm to fraud 3-0. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a fraudulent 3-0 and for sure if they go 3-0. and I just – I'm going to take Dallas. I'm taking Dallas. I hate this game altogether. Don't don't bet on this game at all. It's ugly. It's the NFC da- East. Uh, it's, it's the it's NFC gross. East. Exactly. Yeah. Dallas wins 20-9. to And today, at this moment, marks the last time or the closest any other NFC East team will be to Philadelphia the rest of the year. Because yeah. – Half a a game, that's it. This is the closest they'll get. Now, we had some news come up a little earlier. I'm going to throw it over to you. We'll talk about it for two minutes, and we'll get everybody out of here. But Miles Garrett was in a car accident today. Sounds like it was a single car accident, but it was a scary situation. Uh, What other information do you have? Is he okay? And I guess if he isn't, what's going on? So he basically what happened is, is following practice, he was in a single car crash in like near Wadsworth, which I think is on his way home, if not close to home. But the interesting tidbit is that there's a female passenger in the car. Both of them don't have any any significant injuries. Both of them went to the hospital, were cleared, whatever. They were cleared of any like drug or alcohol usage. Thank God for on both accounts. Thank God everyone's all right. Thank God this wasn't a horrifically stupid decision. I think there's not really more information that non-life-threatening injuries. Is he going to miss next week's game? Is he not? You know, I think if he had a significant injury that would keep him out, you'd probably know it by now. I don't know. There's a lot of question marks I have with this. Like, you're in your Porsche, probably reckless driving in this. Or if you're not, I don't really want to say this, but like what's going on with the female passenger in the car that you're unable to stay on the road? I don't know. Like, I don't want to be that guy, but like, there's really only two question marks is, are you reckless driving or is something happening with that female in the car, whether it be your head's in the gutter or whether it be like a fight or something like that, that causes you to, I don't know, lose control of the vehicle, not pay attention, something like that. Uh, A lot of question marks. I'm a little worried that Miles Garrett could be out for at least a game, but hopefully I'm wrong on all fronts and and he's there in the next game. Yeah. Most important thing right now, at least is that everybody's okay. So hopefully we see him back on the football field sooner rather than later, but that is going to bring us to the end of another episode of lost down. Make sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at loss of down and our Twitter at down underscore loss. Remember that this episode was brought to you today by Abby Turner creative. David, I want to throw it over to you. Parting words for us. Anything that we uh, want to keep an eye on this week? 
No, just hammer the Philadelphia and Cincinnati money lines unless they play the Browns. And you brought up Cincinnati again. I keep thinking about the uniforms. The whiteout this <laughs> Thursday. I'm so damn excited. You won't hear it until Friday morning, but that's going to be fun. I'm hammering it just because you look too good to lose in those. I'm convinced that's a thing. Look good, feel good. Look good, feel good, play good. That's what I'm talking about. And with that, the Raiders are worthless. Bet the Bengals. And I'll be sad again on Friday. We'll see you then.